Well, we are back in the book of Luke this morning, so let's go ahead and make our way there to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Well, it has been several months since we've been in the book of Luke together, so just a quick little recap before we read our text. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, He is in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the scribes are doing all that they can do to try to discredit him before the people, uh, because when he entered into the city of Jerusalem, he was welcomed with the pronouncement of Hosanna, uh, and many are leaning towards him as being their Messiah. The religious leaders, though, absolutely disagree with that, and as a result, they are continuously, without fail, trying to cause him to lose his credibility in front and, of course, in the eyes of the people. And as he has had a dinner with the Pharisees at the end of chapter 11, Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy, outwardly demonstrating to be one way, but inwardly far from God. And as he is leaving that dinner, he now begins to see that the crowds are converging on him once again. And desiring to talk with his disciples, he makes it known to them to avoid the sin of hypocrisy. For them, though, the hypocrisy would be to deny what is actually happening within them. For they do believe, and they may be brought in circumstances that would cause them to deny what they truly believe. The religious leaders stated that they were close to God, but in actuality they were far from Him. They dressed themselves in a religious piety and and, uh, conducted themselves in in many acts of self-righteousness, but in actuality their hearts were far from God. The disciples, on the other hand, were simple people, and I don't mean that in a a derogatory term, but they were blue-collar, hard-working people. And when confronted by the, you know, the religious leaders, they were being confronted by the uh, intellectia of that culture, and it would be easy to be intimidated by such a formidable opponent. Not only were they going to have to confront the religious leaders, the scribes, who were so well-versed in the law that many of the scribes and Pharisees would have at least the first five books committed to memory of the Bible. But they were also going to have to stand before authorities, from Rome to Jerusalem, etc. And Jesus did not want them to cave underneath the pressure of those those appointments. And I use that word specifically because they were appointments. So we begin in chapter 12 as Jesus now directs his attention towards his disciples. And in verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms 
shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who could kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, to whom you too fear, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And are not, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who speaks blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, uh, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus knew that he was about to come to the moment of the cross. He knew that, of course, in the wake of his death, the disciples would be confused and maybe even stumbled by the uh, abruptness of his death. And to be tortured in the manner that they were going to witness him be tortured and to see him crucified and hung in such shame and humility upon a cross, this was going to be very difficult for them to witness. It would shake them to their core and really cause them to question, have we really put our faith and trust in the right person? And so Jesus now is trying to encourage them. He's trying to show them and demonstrate for them that he will be with them as he sends the Holy Spirit to them. And that when they find themselves in places where they are uh, tempted to deny the Lord, he is then asking them at that moment to trust God, that he shall be with you. He begins all of this by warning them against the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is a term that is used throughout the New Testament to indicate sin. The Jewish person would have been well, well known of that fact because when Passover was observed, leaven was to be removed from the entire house. The bread was not to contain any of it, only a certain portion of it. And leaven, again, was to point to and once again demonstrate that the Savior that was going to give his life for a ransom for all would be the one who is without sin. And he specifies that this sin that I'm referring to, this leaven that I'm referring to, is the hypocrisy in which the scribes and the Pharisees walk within. Paul the Apostle brings this to the Jewish I'm sorry, to the Gentile believer in 1 Corinthians, where he clearly states that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Now you say, well, what is that about? You know, well, again, leaven was used for baking. 
If you are a baker, and I am not, I am not a baker, I appreciate those who are, and uh, welcome any gifts that they would like to provide. Uh, that being said, baking is a, is a unique art. You know, some people say they can bake, but it's really, you know, putting the ingredients in the box in a pan and mixing it with an egg and some milk and throwing it in the oven. But then there are others who can really bake, you know. I remember going over to my grandmother's house in the 70s, and of course, we being the children that we were, we used to love to run in grandma's house. But often, she was trying to bake a cake, and she'd say, stop running, stop running, the cake will collapse. And like, we don't care, we're running, we're running. You know, why are you running? I don't know, but we're running, you know. And uh, she'd grab us, you know, by the collar and just, you know, say, all right, I'll stop it, you know. Because you're going to eat your cake and like it. But we want to run and then we'll have cake, you know. Cake was always a good time at Grandma's house. But leaven is a piece of dough that has been uh, saturated with yeast or uh, some other type of uh, putrefaction that would allow the dough to rise as it is being cooked. And so the only way to introduce leaven into a new piece of baked goods was to take a little from the old lump and bring it into the new lump. The lump, of course, was the lump of dough in which Paul is referring to. Now he's using that illustration to say that if we bring the sin of the old life into the new life, it will not only permeate our life, but it'll have detrimental consequences upon all life within the church. Sin is very destructive. Sin will destroy. Sin never edifies, it never brings blessing, etc. Sin always destroys what God is trying to do. It is the weapon in which uh, Satan uses to steal, kill, and destroy. Notice what Paul says when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, Your boasting is not good, chapter 5, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's your goal for today, to be a new lump in Jesus Christ. As you really are unleavened, because Christ has, of course, dealt with it. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been uh, sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festivals not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice or the sin of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and in truth. Paul knew that sin could be detrimental to the health of an individual and to the health of the church. Now he's saying to his disciples, that is Jesus is saying to his disciples, now I don't want you guys to continue on in the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. For they display themselves to be right before God, but their hearts are far from me. You though are right before me, but I don't want you to be intimidated and therefore deny me before people. Hypocrisy is one of those challenges that the Christian church for years has been hearing from the world. I'm sure that at one time or another you possibly have found yourself in a conversation that stated that the reason this person didn't want to go to church was because of the hypocrisy of Christians. They say one thing and they do just the opposite. And for the most part, we have given them ample reason to say that, haven't we? 
See, many Christians are under the delusion. Let me say that again. Many Christians are under the delusion that being a Christian is simply acknowledging that I am a Christian, but therefore not living it in any type of way, shape, or form in and through their life. That's delusional. To think that you are a Christian, but you have no capacity or no uh, understanding or you have no um, desire to live out your Christian faith. This is an oxymoron in the Bible. This doesn't uh, go together. When someone said they believe something in the Bible, they acted upon it. And therefore you knew, as Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them, either the fruit being good or bad. What is manifested through their life will be indication of where they truly are. Now I've heard many claim Christianity, but if you look at their life, you know, they live in a way that is totally devoid of any conscientious uh, understanding of God. Now can I say to that person, well, you have... Nothing to worry about. You're, you, know, you say you believe, and you know, I can't see that from your actions, but as long as you say you believe, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that one who is truly a Christian, a work will begin within them that eventually will manifest itself on the outside. Now, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, of course, not to judge one another. For we are all works in progress. And that work may be slower in some than in others. Some of us might be just catching up. You know, there are those of us who are overachievers. And, you know, it just seems like the work of God just happily goes along in their life. And they're conformed more and more into the image of God. And then there's people like me. Where I went to the school of hard knocks. And it seemed like continuously I was that little bird flying into the plate glass window before I got it right, you know, and yet God was patient with me, and that's why I think we should be patient with one another, but then there are those others who don't seem to have any real concern for the manner in which they live. Oh, they'll come to church, and they may even serve in some capacity, throw a few bucks in the offering, but they have no reason. I mean, they have no outward evidence of any type of salvation within them. The way they talk, the way they think, the way they act. And I think that in America, we have given those individuals a false sense of security by saying, hey, you know, don't worry, you prayed a prayer at one time and that's all that it takes. Well, I believe that that's all that it takes to be saved, but when someone is truly saved, you will eventually see the outworking of that salvation. Now, I am not saying that these things are done to earn our salvation or to maintain our salvation. I'm saying that it's just a natural process of our Christian life. And yes, if you were to plot out my Christian life over the last 30-some years, it would be up and down and up and down and up and down. But the trajectory overall would be continuously going up because of the work of God in me. So yeah, you could see me at one of my low moments and say, well, we'll just continue to pray for that young man. And there's many in the church that used to do that when I was back in, uh, when I first got saved. But then there were other times that it was obvious that God was working in my life. And it's the same for you, I'm sure. 
Maybe your valleys are not as deep as mine were, and maybe, but you know, it's up and down, up and down. But eventually, you, you look back over 20 years and you say, Yeah, I can see that I've grown in the Lord since then. We all have those days, but it's these other people who have had some kind of religious experience and then they're just flatlined. That there's no indication that any kind of change has taken place in, li- in their lives. And those are the people that I am concerned about. Oh, they can speak Christianese very well. They may know where a few Bible verses are. They may give glory to God and even pray over their food. But have their hearts been changed? Jesus here made it abundantly clear that the hypocrisy of individuals would not remain secret or hidden. Nothing, he says in verse 2, is covered up that will not be revealed, or the hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. He undoubtedly was looking towards the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, knowing that one day everything would be revealed. That things done in secret would be openly exposed. As the Proverbs states in 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jesus knew that there was going to be a time where all things were going to be held accountable. And things done in the secret undoubtedly talking about the meetings that the religious leaders have had to try to undermine him and try to destroy him before the people, all that's going to come out. And now we, of course, know of those things. We also know that when they plotted against him, they were willing to go as far as to fabricate witnesses to come forward and to testify against him in a false manner. And instead of Jesus at that moment, he rested on the fact that one day it will all come out that he was innocent and that he was falsely accused. But you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, this verse has often been used to say, now God is watching you, be careful. You know, you're like, and being a little kid, that's one of the first times I ever heard it. It was at a church when I was small and God is watching everything you do and so forth. And, you know, and it's true. It's absolutely true, but what does he do with the sins in which we commit? The sins that we commit have all been dealt with in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It is not God's goal that when we stand before us to shame us before all for the things that we have done in private that the Lord has paid for. However, though, the religious leaders who believe that they are acting on the behalf of God, their shame will be brought to light. Their shame will be brought into the uh, examination of all. And as Jesus said very clearly, that these things that are hidden are the things that will be known. And referring specifically to the religious leader's hypocrisy. People will know that they are not as righteous as they believe that they are. That the legalism in which they portray and the burdens in which they place on others, it'll all come to light that it's not what God had and desires for His people. 
meaning that God will show them the truth in what is necessary. But when it comes to the disciples, he knew that their issue was not a hypocrisy of self-righteousness, pride or arrogance, such as the religious leaders. The concern that he had for them was fear. He was concerned that the fear would motivate them and move them to do things that they did not want to do. One commentator wrote, he says, pressure often causes people to go along to get along. Fear can motivate us and uh, tempt us to do things that we don't want to do, specifically that of the denial of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that these men were going to be his ambassadors into the world after his death, burial, and resurrection. And though Jesus spent a certain number of days with them after the resurrection, eventually he knew he was going to once again ascend into heaven. And these men were going to have to require the confidence to stand boldly before the uh, authorities and the rulers and the religious leaders that would challenge them greatly. That boldness came in the form of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And continued in chapters 3, 4, and 5, and 6, when they are confronted, not by just the religious leaders, but by the authorities of that day, and so forth. Been put into prison. Some being killed and stoned. They needed a strength that was beyond their ability. And to allow that strength to have its perfect work within them, they needed to get past fear. Fear can inhibit you from doing many, many things. Back in 1988, I mentioned this story. Um, I was invited to go out with my pastor to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa to listen to Pastor Chuck Smith and the other guys at a pastor's conference. And I was ex- so excited to go. I, 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 was, I just really felt that the Lord wanted me to go. I wasn't a pastor at that time, and at that time I had no... Uh, idea of ever becoming one. But something began to happen before that trip to California. I began to have a series of serious, serious nightmares, one right after another. And the nightmare was the same thing over and over again, that the plane to California was going to crash. It was so bad. Now, I had flown many, many times before that with my parents, It wasn't that I was unaccustomed to airplanes or didn't know what flying felt like or anything like that. I just had this incredible fear. The fear was so bad. The fear was so bad that one night I got up and actually was physically sick because I was so afraid. I was a new believer. I didn't know what was going on. So I went to my pastor and I said, you know, I continuously have these nightmares, one right after another, about the plane crashing. And my pastor just continued to encourage me to have faith in God, to trust Him. One of the other pastors said, well, you know, God may want to take you home so you don't backslide. I'm like, yeah, he was a great guy, you know, (laughs) sweet guy, you know. But he played a, a big role in my Christian life. So I decided to stick it out. 
And the day that we were to leave, I went to the airport and I was meeting a gentleman who was, uh, we were going to travel together. I had never met him before. Nicest guy. Um, and we were sitting in the waiting area for our plane to board. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, listen, I got to tell you something and I don't want to scare you. But I've had numerous dreams that this plane is going to crash. And I'm like, great, excuse me. No, Uh, you know, because I I was already, I was 19 at the time. And I'm like, great, yeah, this is all I need. And he was an older brother in the Lord. He was very mature, godly man, uh, elder at his church. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, I've had the exact same dream. And he goes, well, do you think that we should get on the plane or not? And I'm like, what are you looking to me for? I just started this whole Christian thing. You know, what do you think? And when they finally, we were waiting there and we were praying and we were talking and we didn't know if we should interpret it as the Lord was keeping us from harm or the devil was trying to keep us from one of the greatest blessings of our lives. Well, we decided to get on the plane and trust the Lord. And I can't tell you that I was like, I am just going to trust God at this moment. So be it, Satan. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Hopefully I fall asleep before I die. Um, so I don't feel anything. So on the way there, I try to enjoy the last meal as they passed out meals going across the country. I, I traded everybody in my row for their carrot cake. And I was like, if I'm going down, I'm going down right And the flight was beautiful, just a beautiful, smooth flight from here to California. And we were getting ready. We're making our loop around to come into John Wayne, uh, Orange County. And and I'm like, well, you know, maybe we were, we were, you know, just crazy. You know, I'm glad we did. I'm glad we got on the uh, the plane. And the buildings are getting bigger as we're coming on down. And then all of a sudden, He turns it wrong, and we go straight up in the air. And then he levels off, and he goes out over the ocean, dumps his fuel, and I'm like, that's it, we're going down. I went from faith to the valley in about three seconds, you know. Um, And I'm like, that's it, we're going down, you know. You know, I hope we have all my affairs in order, you know. It's like, did I pick up my room before we left? No, I didn't. Well, I'll give some of my parents something to remember me by, you know. Then it pilot comes out and says the front landing gear didn't go down and i'm like great so he says we've just dumped our fuel they're preparing the runway for our arrival uh they will be foaming it if they feel it necessary to do so i'm like what do you mean if they feel it necessary you know okay the plane's half full don't use the foam today you know and we came back around and i just looked out the window and i said lord i can't do this I can't have fear govern my entire life. I can't do it, Lord. This is too much of a roller coaster for anybody to ride upon. I said, Lord, I don't know if the plane's going to crash or not, but Lord, you saved me. My life is yours, Lord. If you want to take me home today, fine. If you don't, then I'll serve you with all my heart. Came back around. The landing gears came down. We pulled right in. One of the pastors picked us up and said, yeah, nothing to worry about, did you? You have little faith. I'm like, yeah, you get on that plane. See how that went for you. That conference changed my life. 
I was sitting there on the floor in Costa Mesa hearing the teaching of the Word of God. The Spirit was so powerful. I came back and I shared the gospel with all of my friends that I could, and seven of them came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. God was preparing a great thing that I was about to allow fear to keep me from. How do we overcome fear? Faith. That's how we overcome fear. So for them, he knew what they were yet still going to do. And he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And then after that, they have nothing more they can do. Interesting way of putting it. It definitely brings things into perspectives. I'm not sure it's what the disciples wanted to hear at that time. If they kill you, they kill you. And there's nothing more they can do after that. But in verse 5, he warns them. But I will warn you to whom to fear. Fear him, that is God, who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. He wasn't threatening his disciples with hell. He was simply stating a fact that God, who can save, also has the authority to condemn. This individual, it is he you need to fear, not man. Man can only simply deal with your body, but God can deal with your soul. The man can only deal with you temporarily, God can deal with you eternally. That's what he was trying to instill in the disciples' minds and hearts. And he says, yes, I tell you, fear him. A reverence, a respect, an honor that is given to God. But also know, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Meaning, they're very... Um, not, I wouldn't say the word worthless, but they are very, very insignificant in the grand scheme of life, these sparrows. But God has not, one of them is forgotten before him. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered, so don't fear. For you are more valuable than many sparrows. He's saying, don't, don't just think that God is trying to, you know, see if you'll deny him or not due to fear, but he cares for you and he will take care of you at those moments. Again, transferring to us the idea that God's heart is for us, that he loves us and cares for us. And every little detail of our life matters to God. That's why he says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, they're subtracting rapidly. For others of us, they seem just to continue on. He says, fear not. Fear not is found 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. I love that. Fear not. Do not let fear motivate you to know that you are more valuable than these sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of God will also acknowledge before the angels. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels. This is an, another text that many have improperly interpreted to believe that in the course of our life here on this earth, if we were to deny God, God were therefore deny us in heaven. The problem with that interpretation is this. The language used here in this verse is language that is used to describe the last days. First and foremost, he calls himself the Son of God. This is a term of, God, of him being judge. 
And he is saying that on that last day, in that moment of judgment, is when I will deny you before the angels and before the Father for your denial of me here on this earth. Second of all, the second thing is he brings us into throne room language by saying before the angels. I encourage you to look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, to notice the angelic uh, presence at the throne room of God. Also in Revelation 4, 6 through 11, we find angels' presence at this time. This is not something that we should automatically concern ourselves that the moment I deny God here in some way, not just verbally before those who I may be fearful of, but denying Him in the manner in which I live, that God will deny me before others. I do not believe that's the proper intention of this passage. What I do believe he's saying is that a life that is consistently lived in a position of denial will be a life that I deny in the last days before the angels and before God. Why do I believe that? Well, notice what he says next. He says here, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is found here and in Mark chapter 3. It is called in Mark's gospel a internal sin. It is a sin that is unforgivable. And many have tried to identify what the unforgivable sin is. And there's only one conclusion based on Old Testament examples And the context in which we are given here in the New Testament that the unforgivable sin is the denial of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the last true witness working through the church, revealing to the world who Christ actually is. For John says that the Holy Spirit is given to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is in this world convicting the world of the reality of who Christ truly is and convicting the individual for their personal need of Him as Savior, for He alone can be our Savior. If we deny that, we are denying the witness of the Holy Spirit. If we reject Jesus Christ, there's nothing that we can do for the pardoning of our sins and our personal justification before God. Those things are completely incapable of being reached in and through the life of the individual. I can only reach those things through Christ. So I fully believe that what he is referring to here is the denial of Jesus Christ is the only unforgivable sin. I also believe this, and I believe that this issue of denying the Lord will be uh, challenged and judged in the last days because of an individual named Peter. Peter denied the Lord how many times? Three times. But Christ never denied him. In fact, when Jesus rose again, one of the first people he sought out was Peter. If the issue of denial was simply a denial of God before people out of fear, that any one of us are capable of doing due to our simple human weakness, That would be a terrifying thing to consider, wouldn't it? But notice that Jesus sought out Peter, asking him three times, 
do you love me? Restoring Peter. And then when the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, Peter was the first one to proclaim with boldness who Christ was to the people. And 3,000 individuals were saved. No, I believe that what Jesus is referring to here is one who denies the witness of the Holy Spirit, one who denies Christ before the people for their entire existence here on this world. And it, it is those that Jesus will deny when the books are open, their lives are examined, and they are cast from God into an eternity separated from God. Notice then what he says here in verse 11 in closing. And when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Is there anything interesting to you in the manner in which Jesus states this truth? It's not a matter of if they will bring you before these people. It is a matter of when they will bring you before these people. It's prophetic. These things are going to happen. So don't be afraid when they do. For at that moment, God will be with you. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I have been in situations where I find myself confronted with a question or a challenge or uh, some type of uh, um, you know, accusation about God or about the Bible, and I have had no time to prepare any kind of defense, but yet the Spirit brings to mind verses. It brings to, he brings to mind illustrations. He brings to mind evidence, etc., that I had learned previously. And going through the catalog of my mind, which is, I don't know if anyone would want to go through there, uh, going through the catalog of my mind, the Spirit just brings out the things needed. And I believe that's what he's referring to here. Don't be anxious in thinking you have to prepare for these events. Continuously prepare for your walk with the Lord in the Word and in prayer, and you will be prepared for the Holy Spirit to draw from what you have learned and even possibly give you insight that you didn't have previously. I have no problem with that interpretation because these were the apostles. And we know that Jesus said to them that there are still more things for you to learn, but right now you cannot handle them. But he's reassuring them, knowing their frailties, knowing their weakness, knowing that fear is a reality that they may succumb to. He's encouraging them. He's not chastising them. He's not, um, you know, railing against them. He's encouraging them to stand in this moment and to allow the Holy Spirit to have His perfect work in and through them. I believe that the sin of hypocrisy, which can be lived in one of two ways, those who are not Christians calling themselves Christians, and those who are Christians denying the fact that they are Christians to the world. Many Christians today have taken the path of compromise. We avoid subjects with families, friends, co-workers that we feel may be divisive or not received warmly. We have a tendency to overlook things that 
We know in our hearts that God doesn't want us to overlook, but yet because we don't want to engage in the subject, we don't want to confront the subject, we have a tendency to retreat from the subject. To you, I would say, stand firm. Allow the Spirit to meet you at that place. Because the greatest act of love that we can demonstrate for the people around us in this culture today is to tell them the truth, isn't it? That's the greatest act of love. Now, let's do it with grace, humility. Let's do it with mercy. But the greatest thing that I can do for a person that I say that I love is to tell them the truth. They have a thousand voices yelling at them constantly, telling them what they want to hear in most cases. But love will motivate us to say what they need to hear, even when it's not popular, or it's something we feel is going to jeopardize our relationship with them it's hard today because people don't want to hear what they need to hear but they love to hear what they want to hear don't be afraid don't walk as one who walks in hypocrisy denying who you are as a christian before the world folks the world is dying the world is is reeling Satan has had his work so thoroughly placed within this world. If we retreat, where are people to go to be saved? If we retreat, where are people to go to be saved?